How's it going, folks? Yannick Wasdala here. It's the Yannick Wasdala podcast. I'm in Oakland, California. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see a slightly, not slightly, a vastly different backdrop from what you are perhaps used to seeing. I'm in the hotel. Uh, Bought a bunch of gear with me as I'm shooting some interviews while I'm out here on tour. And um, none of those have cropped up in time to release for today's episode. So here I am solo after the gig in the hotel room. Kind of a little test of the of the road equipment here. And uh, wow, we're five nights, we're five shows into the West Coast tour. And it's been great to play five in a row, first of all. That's always an amazing feeling. Well, let's see. It's not always an amazing feeling. Actually, a, a couple of tours popped into my head where I'm like, holy shit, we're five nights in and it doesn't feel good. So, okay, it's not always an amazing feeling. When you're playing with these guys, when you're playing with Steve Smith, Manuel Valera in the in the incarnation of the 40th anniversary incarnation of Vital Information, it's really fun. Um, <clears throat> my daughter got sick right before I left. So I picked that up, which is unfortunate and the cough is back um but yeah just reporting in really and while all this stuff is fresh in my mind the 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 instant reminder that is being back on the road and playing very challenging music really every night um we're five nights in a row tonight we're in uh we just played yoshi's here in jack london square in oakland and we'll be in kumbwa uh, probably the same day this podcast is going out. And that will be six in a row before we get a night off. So we definitely have the set kind of dialed in. But at the same time, it's very interesting. Some of the dynamics um, within the within the show and some of the differences between how each of these tunes gets played every night. I'm going to get into all of that and even a little bit of a nerdy harmony question that came up on... Um, my video of three exercises every bass player should try. Some recent thing on the channel. Um, yeah, so we'll get to all of that. First of all, i got to remind people, folks, maybe you don't know about this yet, the pre-sale is on for the new album. We are heading to Argentina. We're heading to Buenos Aires to record the new album with the trio, with Tom Corley, with Nico Icaro. I'm writing choral music for voices. Like, it's starting to get kind of... Epic. I've talked about it a little bit over the past couple of months, but things are really starting to come into focus. Things about uh, working with my old designer who did a lot of album covers like um, Mystery to Me and 55 Bob, Space in Between, Motion Picture. It only happens once. Like Jonas has done a ton of them. So I, I reached out to him to see if he would be interested in coming down and kind of being, you know, director of photography. I'm really taking care of things from a design aspect. So it's on all fronts, it's getting kind of epic. Plus, shows are starting to come together. I wish I could announce them. We're still <clears throat> we're still a little bit away from being able to announce the shows in South America. But yeah, that is all happening. And the pre-sale for the album is on. That's kind of what is helping facilitate a lot of this stuff. That is linked in the show notes of this episode or directly below the video if you're watching this um, episode of the podcast on YouTube. And basically, it's uh, it, I mean, it's super exciting, first of all, just planning all this stuff and being, I'm not deep into the writing yet, because it's still not until August. And I'm, as I said in the opening of this episode, I'm out on the road right now playing completely different music and having to concentrate on that. So I'm not as deep into the writing process as, as I'm going to be, obviously. 
Um, it's more sort of logistics and making sure I can move everyone around the world and get them in the right place at the right time and, um, you know, make sure everyone kind of shows up and uh, is prepared as best they can and as best I can be. So it's really logistics now and obviously doing the pre-sale and getting all of this stuff moving just as we did for One Way Out last year, um, which, as I have talked a little bit about before, was a great success from that standpoint. A lot of people got involved. Um, so I'm definitely hoping there are people out there who are interested in what's happening next and the new project and brand new music and a kind of a bit of a different approach, even though it's the same trio. <coughs> we are going to be uh, doing some, yeah, it, much more kind of compositional and melodic and harmonic exploration here and creating quite a, uh, at least how I hear it right now. See, this will change over time, but the way I hear it right now, it's quite a large sound. And it's quite different in terms of being, of having the trio augmented by, by voices and, you know, quite lush harmony and, yeah, kind of treating the voices in, in a lot of different ways. Quite hard to explain, actually. I think I'm actually going to need to explain it to myself and write it down and solidify the concept a little more over the coming weeks before I can successfully explain it to anyone else. But anyway, that's what's happening. It's all sort of kicking off and that's it, the first week of August. The album will be recorded and uh, will be out, I think we're saying the beginning of November, in time for the European tour. We'll be we'll be in Europe for a couple of weeks playing some shows. I know we're going to be two nights in London, one in Nottingham, of all places. Haven't played there in a really long time. Actually, I really don't remember when the last time I played Nottingham was. It's been at least 15 years. And then some stuff, maybe Poland... Uh, Romania, I think France is on the hit list. It's just a bu bunch of different places around Europe. We're going to pack it all in for a couple of weeks. So, <clears throat> man, really wish I'd get rid of this cough. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's all it's all kind of kicking off, and and the you know the chaos is happening on multiple levels. So let's get to what's happening right now this week. I really want to report in on the gigs with Steve and with Vital Information is really, you know, it's a band I used to listen to when I was, uh, when I was a kid and it's something that was a big influence for me. Um, it, it, especially as we, we close the show with this tune, the perfect date, uh, which is from an album, maybe the first record, definitely over 30 years old because it's the 40th anniversary. We're doing a couple of only, only two old things actually that Manuel rearranged piano player and, um, yeah, we get to kind of revisit that, and it really triggers those memories from when I was a kid, like checking out Fusion, you know, like this, that sound. <coughs> wow, I don't know if I'm going to make it through a whole episode. Holy cow. Uh, maybe I was a little too optimistic. Let's see. I've got plenty of liquid here, too. Um, yeah, I was listening to Fusion, listening to those guys, Steve Smith and Frank Gambali and Jeff Andrews and Tom Costa and, and all of the cats who played in Vital Information. And of course, Steps Ahead that I've talked about before and the Brecker Brothers and that kind of era of 70s, 80s, 90s Fusion that was very influential um, to me, you know, when I was younger. And now to be playing that music, obviously a couple of those old things that Manuel's rearranged which is super fun. It's kind of our his take and our ensemble take on those tunes. And just the evolution of Steve's sound and the sound of the band and kind of what Vital Information as a band is doing now compared to what he was doing when it started 40 years ago. Um, it's really nice to be a tiny part of that history, um, the most current part of that history right now, obviously, and, and find my place in that. Um, 
and that's sort of something that's evolving. It's been evolving because we played some shows last year, and I played with I've played with Steve on and off for many years, and I've even played uh, officially a Vital Information show as early as two thousand. <clears throat> but then that was sort of short lived because of the pandemic. But since the you know since we've been able to play and tour and stuff, we've done some stuff in New York. We played at Birdland. We played on the East Coast a little bit, and of course we made this new album, which is coming out in May called Time Flies. And um, so to be a part of that and sort of find my spot in the band and you know it's really easy i think to get married to um or to get nostalgic about a thing you heard like 20 years ago 30 years ago some something you were really like oh this is the best shit ever in that moment maybe you're a teenager for me it was when i was a teenager and was listening to to vital information and all those fusion bands and to be able to let that go and be present enough for that highly influential sound from back then not to affect I mean it's impossible for it to not affect what I'm doing now at all but for as much as I possibly can to to have it not affect the way I approach the music now um and Steve's sound has changed and just the the the, the drum sound has changed the cymbal sound has changed you know there was uh I think the whole sound has changed actually so to find again find my spot in that really interesting part of the touring process it's not all just like waking up early and traveling a long way and playing a show and getting very little sleep and <clears throat> doing all those sort of stereotypical things that happen on the road there's really um a nice uh sort of research element to it and um development element to it at, in, in real time on the road which is really cool um it, it's almost like is almost like being a band leader or or co-band leader or something. Obviously, I'm not. It's not my band. It's Steve's band for sure. But he is so kind with his sort of open-mindedness and uh, an open approach to the music that I think we all get what feels like a very even amount of input into the music and without any ego as well. You know, if Steve says something to me, I'm just i'm gonna listen to it manuel says something to steve steve is gonna listen it's like really sort of even keeled and very very grown up um very adult of everyone um the way it works there's no like bickering or arguing we're all sort of open to suggestions and it's interesting that um you know we're playing kind of the same set we're basically playing most of the album most of the new album which is really nice <clears throat> to have done you know, to have been in the studio, recorded that, and then be able to go out and really play all the music. Like, there aren't any, there, there's no filler tracks or studio-only things that we aren't able to play live without backing tracks or sequence or something. We can actually play all the stuff live that we that we did in the studio. Even though there was layering and stuff, we, we found a way to play a bunch of stuff as a trio uh, very live, which is really cool. It's nice to be able to play basically the full album. Um. And yeah, to, to, to figure that out live, I, I've actually totally lost my thread because I'm thinking in five different places right now. But to figure all that out in real time is is really, really fun. And I, I can't think of, and I can't think of a project other than my own most recently last year where we did One Way Out and then we did a very short tour of only five days in Europe. That was a similar experience, like figuring out how we're going to take that music from the studio and that was very improvised, of course. One Way Out was almost all improvised. How are we going to do that live and explore that every night? Yeah, and Steve just lets us do our thing. And it's 
it's kind of interesting. Like one of the arrangements, Manuel has this great arrangement of what is this thing called love that we recorded, the Cole Porter tune that we recorded on the album with this section in seven and then really nice unison lines with the left hand of the piano and the bass and <clears throat> live. There's a big drum solo at the end and it's, it's been really interesting. And, and just the way we're approaching the tunes, like there, there's, it's not like it's, completely rigid and, and set in stone like we there's this movement there which is really nice it, it could be so easy in fact i've worked with other people who shall remain nameless um no i've worked with other people that i love to work with actually uh, i've worked with other people from that era from the 70s 80s 90s obviously um i've worked with a lot of guitar but i mean just, just a lot of people that play fusion I've, I've gotten to work with a lot of my heroes and quite often that's not the case like you don't get that input you don't get that sort of decision about what what tune is going where in the set um it's very much okay this is the way i want it this is the way we're going to play it great um which has its you know which has its place as well of course um i would say mike, mike stern is someone maybe a little bit like that we play like um <clears throat> he likes to build yeah which any i think he's very good at building a show stern i think he has a great shape to the to the set when he builds it so it does end up staying kind of thematically speaking it ends up staying quite similar each time we we play with mike stern um but with with steve it's is kind of really different um in the way we're able to approach it and with manuel's arrangement of this tune with this cole porter song what is this thing called love we've been doing it different ways you know sometimes steve will count it off and we'll go right on the vamp in seven um sometimes manuel will play kind of loose out front sometimes he'll play totally free sometimes he'll play on the form and more recently the last few nights he's been playing just um just mel not just melody but a lot of melody a lot of linear ideas with some maybe counterpoint bass lines <coughs> man this is probably not going to last too much longer sorry cats um he's been playing a lot of this linear language vocabulary out front to set the tune up and it's it's been interesting with the tempos Sometimes it has been definitely on the front edge of being maybe a little too fast. And um, in order for the, like in order for the unison lines in the arrangement to work and in order for us to be, to present the music at its most optimal, I think uh, it's a bit of a challenge when it, when it gets too fast. And a couple of nights out of the last five, it has been a little quick, but it's not an issue. Yeah, we feel it in the minute. We feel it in the moment. We're like, oh, shit, that's a little bit quick. And then, like, tonight it was fast. Last night was, like, sort of the felt perfect. And then tonight was a little bit fast on that tune. And Steve just said we came off the stage. And I think that was the last tune we played before the encore. So we're all kind of backstage while the audience was applauding. And um, Steve just said, oh, man, that's, that's, that's too fast for me. And man was like, oh, really? Okay. And, like, hadn't even noticed. He was just, you know, in the moment. And Steve's like, yeah kind of feel like I don't, you know, play my best like at that particular tempo on that tune. It matters well. Like, okay, fine, no problem. So now the decision was made for Steve to give the tempo that he's most com comfortable at before we play and there's no ego involved, which is great. It's just a simple bit of direction and somebody had an issue with this and they fixed it immediately. And nobody, you know, nobody got butt hurt over it and uh on we go. Like on we maneuver with the rest of the tour. Um so yeah, that's kind of <coughs> that's kind of the scouting report on what's been going on 
so far. Um, Catalina's was fun playing three. Not only we play five nights in a row, but we play three nights at the same club. So not only is that cool, anyone who does that uh, ever, you know, you leave your stuff there and you just show up, sit down and play. That's really nice. But it was also in Los Angeles. So that was home for me. So I got to sleep in my own bed, which is super rare in the middle of a tour to suddenly be home, but still playing every night on the tour and uh, only have to be traveling, you know, 25 minutes to the gig and back and then be able to wake up and be around the kiddo. So that was a really nice bonus of uh, of being on the West Coast. And I just, I spoke to Chelsea on the phone um, and, and uh, we realized that in all the time we've been together, it's over six years now, I've never done like just a West Coast tour. I've never done a tour where I was gone, but on the same time zone as the family back home. Um, so it's actually kind of a, a bunch of things going on this week, which is super nice. And, um, you know, that little, we started out in Utah, so I did have to fly out there, but then we came back for the next three shows in L.A., and now we're just up in Northern California. So it's been nice to not be that far from home and to, uh, you know, do a FaceTime with the kiddo at the, you know, at the right time. So it's, it's very nice. Um, I want to get to this sort of nerdy, um, question that cropped up on the last video I posted on YouTube. And it's a, it's a harmony thing. I think maybe this is sort of a common, misconception about what I was talking about. Now, I don't have my bass in the hotel room. I'm not going to be able to play this to you. Uh, but you can go back and watch that. It's called Three Exercises Every Bass Player Should Try. Um, I'm not sure why the person commenting is talking about the fourth exercise because I'm pretty sure there are only three. Maybe I put five and I mistitled it. Anyway, you will find it on the YouTube channel. These are some sort of basic basic exercises that have been in my routine for a long time that I think are super useful. And I explain why in the video, of course. But uh, I think an often mis, uh, misunderstood concept when using um, diminished vocabulary but over a dominant chord to go to the one chord. So you've got a five to one cadence. I really wish I had a piano here. That wouldn't that be awesome? Sadly, I'm not Paul McCartney and I can't demand there be a piano in every hotel room. I'll make do with some liquid to try and hold this cough at bay. Um, in fact, I'm not going to waste my time putting the top on that bottle. Um, so yeah, so the diminished thing, using uh, diminished language over a, a, a dominant chord to head to the one. <coughs> the question came uh, to say that um, I think my confusion boils down to this. Many of the notes in the G sharp diminished scale, if that's what it is, that's what they're asking, aren't contained within the major scale. Furthermore, the G-sharp isn't the fifth scale degree in C major, so I'm wondering how slash why this works. Okay, so I'm going to explain all that and give you the context and, and all of that. If you're this person listening, who is this? Uh, oh my God. Auto, I can't even, fantasize. I don't know. This is uh, quite the handle. I sort of wish people would just use their names on YouTube. It'd make it so much easier to credit you with the question if I do that. Um, so maybe if you're starting a YouTube channel, that might be worth thinking about. Just use your name. So much easier to read most of the time. Um, so yeah, so if you hear the thing, like if you've watched my video and you heard me play the exercise and you hear that it works, like you do, if, 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 if you're sitting there like, okay, that sounds like, it makes sense. If it sounds like it makes sense, my first suggestion to you is to just do it. 
Don't think about it. Just do it. Put it in your muscle memory with the feeling and the feedback to yourself that it makes sense. That to your ear, which is the most important thing through all of this, that to your ear it makes sense. And you can feel where the tension is, you can feel where the dominant chord is, and you can feel where the resolution is when it goes to the one. Those are the, those are the most important elements of it. It's not like what the scale degree is and the name of this and the bullshit of that. No. The more you're thinking about it being diminished or G-sharp not being in the major scale, and here we go, I should explain the context. So the context is you're in C major. Your dominant chord is G7. So if you're sitting there with your bass right now, just play C major, chord, triad, or even the scale. Play a G7 chord, the root, the third, and the flat seventh, so G, B, and F natural. And then go back to the C major triad. It's just one, five, one. It's a perfect cadence, five going to one. <clears throat> now, I'm using diminished over the dominant chord. So you can start a diminished arpeggio. There are only four notes in it. You can just start that on either the flat nine, the major third, the fifth, or the flat seventh. I'm without the instrument and I'm just like talking about it. I have to actually visualize that. See, this is the thing. I know that it works. I hear that it works. It's actually way more work to think about what all the notes are. But yeah, so flat nine, major third, uh, natural five, and flat seven. Those are the four possible notes in that diminished arpeggio that you can use over that, over a dominant chord. In this case, it's G. So G is the dominant chord. Now they've said in in the question in, in in the question on YouTube they've said G sharp, but actually in this context, a half step up from G is actually A flat in this context because it's a flat nine. It's not a sharp one. It's a flat nine. So it would actually be A flat that this person is asking about. And yes, G seven, the flat nine is A flat. So you can start on the A flat. You can start on the major third, which is B. You can start on the fifth, which is D, and you can start on the uh, the flat seven, which is F natural. All of those notes work over that dominant chord, and they all resolve into the one chord. Just because they're not in the natural major scale of the key center, which is C in this case, doesn't mean to say they don't work. And of course they do. And when you listen to the video, you listen to the music in the video, you hear, ah, <coughs> I can absolutely hear a perfect cadence. I can hear five going to one. It's as, it's as simple as that. It's one of the, uh, there are a bunch of clinicians that do this and they'll sing, they'll sing something and they'll say, okay, what's the next note? And without fail, uh, you know, they're trying to get the audience to sing from five to one. The audience will always go home. They'll always go naturally where their ear is going and sing the one. I've, I've seen that so many times in different masterclasses and clinics because it's the natural inclination uh, at least in Western music and, and people who've listened to the radio or, you know, maybe they're more advanced and they're music students or perhaps you're into jazz like I am. It's a very, very natural place to go. It's from five to one. So if you want to understand it, you know, theoretically, and if you want to, like, talk about it, I mean, that's really the only time I think that you need to know why and what and how from a theoretical standpoint um, otherwise, I'd really recommend you just stay away from that initially, at least, and just know how it feels. Understand that, oh, okay, so I've got these four starting, like, boil it down to whatever gets your foot in the door. You know, f for me, it's easy to explain it by, hey, there are these four starting points to get this very specific sound on a dominant chord. 
and what does it do? It gets you these tensions of flat nine. Obviously, major third is in the is in the chord. Natural fifth is in the chord, and flat seven, as it's a dominant chord, is in the chord. So, <clears throat> what you're getting is this one kind of flavor, which is the flat nine. Um, one kind of out, more outside note. It's actually the only note that isn't, as this person was asking, in in the natural major scale of the key center. So it's again really important just to listen and do it, play it, like do it, feel it happen. It's one thing listening to me do it or whoever you hear doing it. Um, it's quite another to experience it yourself. I think that's the real. That's the moment where you're like, oh, it doesn't matter what it's called. You can get to that later you really feel compelled to learn the theory and do the analysis you can absolutely get to that later and it's just as easy as learning how to say uh bonjour comment ça va in in in, in french hello how are you it's, it's literally as easy as learning what that is and, and 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 you know why bonjour is hello and why comment ça va is how are you it's literally as easy as learning the rudimentary elements of another language <clears throat> but you don't learn another language by, you, you know, it, if you wanted to say, hello, how are you in French, you wouldn't learn how to spell the words first before you spoke them. I'm, I'm pretty certain that I might be able to go 100% positive feedback on this one for anyone listening that speaks a second language, for instance. I'm pretty sure that the first bits and pieces that you learn of that language were not you didn't have to take a spelling lesson. You heard someone say those words, or even in a class, you were taught as an oral tradition. You know, your teacher will have, either if you learn it in a class, your teacher will have just been speaking to you in that language and repeating bonjour. You walk in the classroom, bonjour, and, you know, maybe your name's Michelle. So bonjour, Michel, and you hear that word associated with your name, just as you hear the flat nine associated with the dominant chord, and suddenly you're like, oh, well, I know the dominant chord, What's this bonjour bullshit, a half step up? Oh, it's A flat. Okay, cool. Well, whatever. I don't need to know that it's A flat. I just need to know that like bonjour Michel means hello Michel. And A flat on a G7 chord means flat nine. And it gives you this specific sound. <clears throat> and I think unlike language, hey, this is a really unresearched, uh, uh, you know, idea off the top of my head. Um, but I'm pretty unlike language there there were like way less options with music like English alphabet 26 letters uh kind of western chromatic scale only 12 notes right so um even that you're like your basic palette of of note names is already you know less than half than the letters you have in the alphabet and then your tensions are flat 9 sharp 9 you know sharp 11 uh or flat five, sharp five, they're just a, a, a finite number of tensions on these chords. So it's, even if you want to learn all the theory, it's really not that far away because there just aren't that many options. Um, even when you get into like major seven, sharp nine or major seven, flat nine, it's still conceptually, it's the same tensions. You're just changing the quality of the chord. You know, tensions don't always have to happen on a dominant chord. Um, it's sort of a little bit rare to have like a minor seven flat nine, for instance, but it's not like it's not a sound. <clears throat> Just have to really um, be in the mood, I guess, with a chord like that. But but no, but basically what I'm saying is do it first. But listen, of course, listen, watch, learn, and, and, and then, but then do it. Really important just to do it and, uh, and, and feel what that 
Well, feel what that sounds like. That sounds like such a bad sentence in the English language, but there is a certain amount of truth to that. I think there's a huge amount of feeling that goes into certain sounds, and you feel a certain way when you play them, you feel a certain way when you hear them. And for me, associating those sounds with certain feelings has been really key in terms of being able to do them naturally. Being able to play over any chord, over any harmony, through any harmony, just as naturally as I'm talking to you right now. As I'm looking at the camera and I'm talking into the microphone, and it's like a stream of consciousness. I had no idea I was going to talk about this 30 minutes ago, but here I am. I have a moderately decent command of the English language. I know a little bit about harmony, and here I am just... The words are flowing out. I'm not thinking about how they're spelled. I'm not thinking about how they would be punctuated, how the sentences would be punctuated if they were written down. It's all completely natural. And I think that's what gets a little bit lost when it comes to music and when it comes to improvisation. That's not to say <coughs> that knowing the harmony is not important from a theoretical standpoint. As much as I talk about doing it and feeling it first, um, I think there's, of course, there are many, many valid reasons for knowing what's going on from a technical standpoint faster access to certain things uh, especially when in conversation for instance rehearsals you want to tell a piano player it's a specific voicing it's not just c minor but it's always oh, c aeolian Ooh, you know how do you want that voice well i want this note and that note and that note and you can tell them a whole set of tensions and oh do you want to try it? oh well i really like that upper structure try it and suddenly you've you know you've explained this much wider palette of colors you know maybe more than a simple chord symbol can describe and, and and that is only so you don't have to walk over there and play the voicing for them yourself it's so you can be understood quickly and make the best use of everyone's time so uh, there are many reasons to know the theory um, but i would hate to think that you got hung up on being able to, you know, uh, on not being able to play your instrument because you were thinking about it too much and because you feel like you don't understand why, as the person said, G-sharp, it's actually A-flat, you know, if, you, if you're spelling it correctly, you have no, no idea why A-flat works on that G7 chord when A-flat is not in the major scale of the key, your destination key. So, yeah get as many i always talk about the links in the chain and how if there are that maybe there should only be two links to me there's the 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 musical idea is one link and then the performance is the other and they're like linked tight together like that now you start putting more links in that chain and those two essential elements get farther and farther apart and you have this whole other set of processes to processes i never know that word <clears throat> but you have these whole, this whole bunch of other things to go through and think about that get in the way of the musical idea being attached to the performance. And as soon as you separate those two, you, your performance gets just, you can hear that. I can hear when somebody's thinking. Um, I can hear when they're playing, when they're thinking about what they're doing. And conversely, I can hear when they're in complete flow state and they're not thinking about anything. And that's when you hear the best music. That's when you hear the best musicians. That's when you hear just when you have a great experience as a listener is when that musician is not thinking about anything related to harmony. Um, and you will find that is a common thread if you, you ask your favorite musicians, you know, um, 
who are you know truly great at what they do for the, for the, I, I would hazard a guess that most of them will say yeah well I, I don't I don't have to think about that because it's something I hear it's something I feel and something I've listened to repeatedly and then played repeatedly so it's that's again as natural as having this albeit one-sided and one way because it's a podcast I'm sitting in a hotel room on my own <clears throat> it needs to be as natural as this stream of words this stream of consciousness talking about in this case harmony and being on the road and podcasting from the hotel so that is my recommendation for that as as it always has been and always will be is do it first and then learn what it is later um, it's i think the 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 jazz scam right that's the when jazz became a commodity when jazz became a commoditized um when it became a product you know when people figured they could open schools to teach people how to play it um it sort of got destroyed or at least the at least the uh the most important part of how the tradition of improvised music in that genre is passed down of course it's always been an oral tradition tradition it was always about jam sessions and hanging out and listening to records and doing the work you know and learning the stuff from the generation of musicians that came before you and then taking that and innovating it and doing your own thing with it now it's just a sort of generic blandness um because schools need a curriculum they need a they need a <clears throat> they need a thing they can charge seventy thousand dollars a year for um that's not to say that some of these schools that like Berkeley and USC aren't worth $70,000 a year, but they're not fucking worth $70,000 a year to go learn jazz at. I think they're worth seventy k for the community, for the network, for the facilities that some of these places have, just unreal. I believe Berkeley is now the largest recording facility on earth since that new building, uh, well, probably not that new anymore, but that Mass Ave building next to the 150 building. I wasn't even allowed. I couldn't even get a tour down there the last time I was there. How fucked is that? Um, couldn't even get in the front door. And I had somebody, I have a real close friend who worked like very high up in the in the hierarchy and couldn't get in. Uh, so that's very much an inside thing reserved for students only. Uh, that's the impression I get. So yeah, it could be worth going there to get ridiculous amounts of studio time that could cost you $1,000 a day elsewhere. You spend seventy days in the studio and make the most of your money, and you've you've just uh, you might have saved yourself some money after that, you know. And financial aid is 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 not so bad here and there. So I actually still think it's worth going to these schools, but don't go there based on the lie they're selling you about learning jazz, because that you can learn from records. You can go to a record store, spend about a thousand dollars on the best records, and learn pretty much everything you're going to need to know to start your journey, and about fifty times more than they're actually going to teach you in a school like that about that specific thing. <clears throat> Got to be very clear about that, because yeah, as I said, I still think there's some great value going to these places. It's just they're they're not telling you what that is. I don't think I don't see that right now. Um. It would be so. I would have so much more respect for them if they were like super honest about it and were like, "Yeah, well, you know, we have to have this curriculum here because mom and dad are not going to give little Timmy seventy grand to go to school if the curriculum just says, yeah, we're going to play music for four years.' Um, 
they want the kid to have a qualification. That's another bullshit thing to leave school with at the end of the day, unless you want to become a teacher and go straight back in the system. That's basically the only reason. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a really weird uh, kind of cycle of events that, that just, it, like this perpetual cycle of, of, uh, of what jazz school does for you. It's really bizarre. Because, of course, it didn't exist, like, you know, 60, 70 years ago. It didn't exist. People were just, they just did the fucking work and they got great and they were, you know, motivated. And then when people figured out they could start making some money out of it, there was an initial wave of people making some money. And then, like, the students got qualified. <laughs> such a joke. <coughs> to go back to the school and teach there again. Uh, and, and teach yet another generation of people to have qualifications to teach yet another gen. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. It's kind of crazy. And I, I mean, I get it. If you're not into touring, but you, maybe I actually, maybe that's bullshit. Maybe I don't get it. If you got into music, see, I think there are, there are very few exceptional teachers. I mean, like, People that will really, really, I can pick out like one <laughs> that I had at Berkeley that was worth the price of admission alone. That was Hal Crook. Because he fucked with you, you know? He like he really made you think. He made you ask really big questions of yourself and of the music and of your students and of him. Like, he was a real powerhouse of a human being and a musical mind. And... He had also done a whole bunch of shit as well. He played with Clark Terry. He'd made solo records. He had been a house writer on the TV show Chips, as far as I remember. He'd been like late night show bands. Like he had actually done a bunch of stuff. It wasn't like he just got a degree in teaching and went back to Berkeley to teach. So there was, there was a lot of respect there as well from his, you know, actual musical prowess. So it takes, I mean, I think maybe George Garzone is a little bit like that. I know um, Charlie Bernacus was incredible like that. But we're talking about a very, very few people, very few people that make students ask questions on that level, you know. Um, so it's really, it's a yeah, really kind of bizarre cycle um, of like churning out all these people. And it's kind of crazy, like I, I'm, there are, of course, great musicians. There are, of course, great young musicians coming along. Um, as much as I'm not a massive fan of a lot of new music that's happened in the past maybe 10 years, especially in the lane that, of, of shit I like to listen to, um, there's there's no denying there are good young musicians out there. And they are sometimes coming from or have passed through, if only briefly, like myself and a bunch of other people passed through schools like Berkeley. But man, there's a lot of bullshit. And I, there's way more terrible music. Like people who just like, they don't hear things, the, the most basic things. Like, I mean, scarily so. Like, man, man, this podcast got fucking dark in a hurry, didn't it? But it's kind of crazy. It really is. Like, as I, you know, it, it, and this, I think this is why I'm thinking about this as well. Maybe this would be a good closer because it's also getting half past midnight here. <clears throat> I think. Um, a few, a few really old friends of mine have come out to these shows. People who know me very well, people I've worked with a lot, um, 
great musicians, people whose opinions I respect, and they've all um, said, hey, uh, you know, this um, this is a lot of music. Like, it's, it's, it's quite dense, this this vital information thing. It's like a, it's a very challenging gig. There are a lot of notes, a lot of unison lines, lots of different time signatures, um, you know, like good job but they've said or what, whatever like they they just in the dug the, the ensemble sound they're like wow it's cool that this can sound this way with a trio and my thought has has been like every night so far when somebody's paid a compliment like that it's like yeah and, and boy am i glad i can read music for instance you know because this is a lot of music to learn you know i have a little kid at home and a, a shitload of other responsibilities and i didn't spend anywhere near as much time as I would have done, you know, 10 years ago working on this music before I went on tour. I'd probably have had it all memorized. And there just wasn't the time now. And I, you know, I played on a record. I wrote some of the stuff. So um, it wasn't like it was unknown to me. So I, I had a bit of a head start and it was kind of in my head a little bit. But I'm very thankful that I have some really uh, solid basic skills like i'm talking about the basic shit i'm not trying to toot my own horn here about being a great musician this is really about the fundamentals it's about being able to play this complex music and successfully pull off these shows as a trio as a result of the basic basic stuff the stuff the reactive stuff the little details the 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 ear training stuff that's been developed over years and years and years of working on it <clears throat> not some you know insane knowledge of chordal harmony or some crazy shit no 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 no. you know it's not like i'm doing stravinsky analysis on one side of my brain and playing down that dream with the other it's not that complex but that is those basic skills are some of the things i see are really lacking in college age you know 18 to 22 23 whatever college age is these days um students and I've been to give some clinics and master classes in the not too distant past and been kind of shocked at like, whoa, how do you not hear that that's the four chord? You know I mean, I'm talking really like fundamental stuff that like even kids should really be able to hear and react to. But we're talking about someone who's paying a lot of money in some cases to go to a big school and is in a big program. And like we departed from the one chord. We are now on the four chord. Why don't you hear that? Like, you know, the difference between a C major triad and a D major triad over a B-flat pedal or something. Like, maybe that's a little more advanced, but it's not that complex if you're five years out of college and have been a professional, whatever you play, you know, guitar, keyboards, whatever it is. I hear that. Like, that's a, that's a regular thing that crops up. And um, there are fewer, let's say, I experience fewer and fewer younger musicians having that really high level of awareness on, on the most basic things. So I'm not sure what the answer is, though, because um, it would be really good to have an answer to that. I don't want to just sit here and complain about it, and I know there probably is a solution to that. Um, <clears throat> that In the U.S., maybe that's a direct response uh, or direct, direct result of there being so little funding for great music education and awareness in younger kids you know um like my father chelsea's dad is a a a, a band director down in long beach like serious like long long grammy winning and long time like 
um, committed to the task of getting kids to listen to great music, you know. Um, I haven't spoken to him about like his program. Like, Chelsea's told me things and there are different bands and different levels and it's a really wide variety, I think, of kids at the high school level. Maybe middle school as well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Polly is, but <clears throat> I know he's dealing with a lot of kids and exposing them to a lot of great music. But that's one person in one school, you know. And I think that is more the exception rather than the rule from what I can tell. I should really ask Chelsea and, and her dad actually and, and get some solid feedback on it. That'd be really interesting if that is actually the, the, the answer. You know, I remember being 10 or 11 years old and going to like, I, I didn't go to school. For anyone who doesn't know, I was homeschooled. So I wasn't in a school with a music program. But there was uh, the Merton Music Foundation. They're still around actually in South London. And it's like a little music school and you can go and take uh, very reasonably priced, I remember, because we were piss poor at the time. So I, I know it was reasonably priced. Um, private lessons, you know, 30-minute private lessons with teachers. And then there was a, there were a lot of ensembles, concert band, brass ensemble, guitar ensemble, jazz orchestra, you know, or orchestra, like all kinds of stuff, choir. And uh, I remember that having a massive impact on me um, from, from a really young age. We're talking like almost 35 years ago that I went to that when I was like 10 years old or something, or 11 years old, I can't remember, somewhere around there, pre-teens for sure. And, you know, it was it was what it was, this little dinky music school with... The, the resources, the limited resources they had, doing a lot of great stuff with a lot of great people, you know, in charge and a lot of great people directing the bands, great private teachers, and I learned a lot from that. So I think being around that from a young age definitely helped me. So maybe that is the answer. Um, that's in England. I don't know what it's like here in the U.S. And maybe I, I hear a lot of there is no money for the arts in school. Um, and I'm not saying you, they should be like under strict regimes, like, you know, learning harmony, this and all this theory and blah, 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 but just being exposed to the, to stuff that excites someone, you know, I think that's the, the, <clears throat> the only job of a great teacher, the, the, the bigger, the primary job is to inspire the student, you know, and, um, if you can't drill down to the core of what the student loves and then sort of inject, more you know, like fuel into that for them to get past. It's like you just fuel the machine and the student basically do all the work. You know, of course you can guide and there are like little technical things. Oh, put your hand here and your finger there. Or you, you might want to try this different approach or technical thing. You, know, you can help them in a physical sense, maybe more than, more than anything like directly, but just that little, that feeding the information, like, you know, why transcribe Charlie Parker if you really like periphery? You know what I mean? Maybe you'll get to Charlie Parker. Maybe you love Charlie Parker and, you you know, why transcribe Periphery? Maybe you'll get to Periphery one day. I know I did. You know, used to love Dizzy Gillespie, but I'll listen to some, you know, Periphery anytime. You know what I mean? So, it, but it's like, I, I was, again, that's another thing I think I was very fortunate to have with people around me that were like, these are the records that got us to the place we're at now. And that was the thing I liked listening to because I was there listening to I'm talking about Lawrence Cottle, my, my biggest mentor, <clears throat> and then other bass players in London like Jeff Gascoigne and, and Phil Mulford who were hugely important for me and the, the suggestions of what to listen to were maybe the, maybe the most valuable part of it all. 
Of course, the hang and going to see the live music, actually getting out there and seeing what happens on stage, experiencing that was really important. We are talking like, you know, uh, early 90s. We're talking very pre-internet. Not just pre-YouTube, but pre-internet, pre-everything. I didn't have a phone in my pocket. You know, Phone was a thing in a room, in a house. You know, it didn't go with you. So, yeah, that was massively important. And they weren't like, hey, you have to transcribe everything on Art Pepper Meets the Rhythm section because that's just the rules. No. Jeff Gascoigne told me, I, I really dig that record. And not only is there like great, you know, uh, melodic lines in, in Art Pepper's playing, and he told me the cool story, I think, of like that was made shortly after Art Pepper came out of jail. And I was like, whoa, jazz musicians went to jail? Holy shit. <coughs> and, and like that just, it sparked, it was inspiring. It sparked interest in, whoa, there's this whole other thing going on here. And he was telling me, hey, check out, you know, you should check out Paul Chambers, man, he's a great bass player. And, you know, even though I'd checked out Jeff Gascoigne, for instance, playing a lot of electric bass, um, more so than the upright, which he does play, of course, a lot. Um, he said, man, I, I got to a lot of my stuff because of Paul Chambers, because of Ron Carter, you know, and Lawrence Cotto telling me I got a lot of my stuff from Jacob Astorius, you know, and, you know, have you checked out Pino Palladino? He happens to be Welsh. I'm Welsh. Like, they're just like little connections that were made very early on because of, and with, these weren't teachers for me. These were mentors. Like, I begged Lawrence to give me lessons, and he never would. He never told me a single thing about harmony ever. It, I mean, it wasn't until years and years later, 20 years later or something, I don't know, long time later where we, I think we were having a curry or something in London and we were talking about harmony. And I, I seem to remember asking him about uh, the one voicing in his big band. And I, I thought it was like like F7 over E7 or something, like some Stravinsky or some messy, I don't know, some like almost modern classical sounding thing. And he's like, oh yeah, that's what it was. And that, that was as close as he got to talking about harmony with me. Um, I asked him about all the time. And he's just like, no, you got to hear it. You know, best, you've got to hear it. Best five words I think ever spoken to me was, no, you've got to hear it. And when you hear it, then you feel it. And I think when you feel it, it never goes away. Never goes away. We talked about this very briefly in the Marcus Reuter interview from a few weeks ago on the podcast where my first experience of a nine, a natural nine tension on a minor chord was G minor nine from Alison Moyer's, uh, I, I, I was about to say I doubt she did the arrangement, but I don't know. <coughs> it's kind of a pop singer doing jazz stuff, so I, I have no idea actually. I'm, I'm going to give it a benefit now. Maybe she did do the arrangement. It is the arrangement of Alison Moyer singing uh, This Old Devil Called Love, and I played that chord, when I heard it, I was like, what is that? And I was singing at the piano and I figured it out. And I was like, oh, the A natural and the B flat go together in the chord. And there's an F natural and there's a G in the bass. And so sometimes there's the fifth and sometimes there's the 11. Holy shit. I thousands and thousands of times I just played that chord. I didn't even change key. I played it over and over again. And that feeling has never left me. And I have a similar feeling for every single combination of tensions on every chord i i think maybe i'm sure there are probably some some i don't have uh, as much familiarity with especially when you start stacking okay so as to scrub that 
have a similar experience on lots of relatively common tensions and and harmonic situations, shall we say. And that just came from listening. Listening and doing and feeling. And that combination, it it has never left me. It can never leave me. Unless I like bash my head on the sidewalk and get, you know, amnesia or something. Uh, That will be here in my musical palette for the rest of my life. And I think that's, you know, rather than asking questions about why does G sharp work on a, again, A flat work on a G7 chord, just do it. Just play it over and over again. Play it a thousand times. Record yourself. Have the discipline to do it. If you're truly curious about it, that's the other thing. Don't do it because I said to do it. Use some of the concepts that I suggest, sure. But make sure the content, the content that you put into those concepts is something that inspires you. All right, that's it. My voice is going, going, gone. It's also 12.30 right on the nose and I've got to get some sleep. So I appreciate you guys hanging out and uh, allowing me to test out the gear on the road. This is kind of awesome. And uh, when my computer finishes updating, this will be up on YouTube. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy. Again, pre-sale for the new album is happening. It's below the video if you're watching on YouTube. It's linked in the show notes uh, of the podcast. And I'll catch you all again on the next one got some great interviews coming up gonna sit down with steve smith on this tour and have a nice long conversation about all the stuff maybe i'll tease a little bit there he's playing the drums yes the drums on um don't stop believing open arms all the biggest journey hits he's actually he actually has that drum set from the early 80s on this tour (coughs) so i'm gonna try and sit behind the drums and play it and get a little video of it because i think that would just be cool I believe he's selling the kit at the end of this tour as well. He's sort of downsizing everything, and uh, that kit is going to uh, fans, uh, uh, big fans with some deep pockets, I would imagine. But yeah, um, we're going to sit down with Steve and talk about all that stuff and all the jazz and, and all of that. And, and other people as well. I've got some really, really cool interviews coming up. I'm going to actually sit down tomorrow with uh, Jack Roan from Noble, uh, the Noble preempt DI that everyone knows, the Tube. Um, the, 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 the thing that took over the bass world in the preempt DI department. So yeah, some really fun conversations I foresee happening over the next couple of weeks and I'll bring them to you on a podcast every week. That's it. See you guys next time. Bye.